Morning, Harmony. Good morning, Harmony. Oh, come on, you can do better than that. Good morning, Harmony. Good morning. Remember, you are in the best place in the world you could possibly be right now. You are in God's house, surrounded by God's family. Uh, a couple things before we jump into the Word. Uh, we got two big, uh, well, three big Sundays in a row right now. We got anniversary Sunday, of course, today, which we've talked about a lot. But just please, if you can, stay with us. We've got some snacks, some food, some old pictures. Uh, you can dig through, see this place back in its glory days with the green shag carpet. I really wish I had seen that. Um, <laughs> next week, we have another exciting Sunday. We have Baptism Sunday. Uh, so right now, we have one person who will be getting baptized. If there's anybody else who wants to talk about getting baptized, please see myself or Brother Joe. We'd love to talk to you about that. And then the following Sunday, on the 20th, we have a child dedication. Uh, for those that aren't familiar with child dedication, that is a, a ceremony that we do that is a parent or grandparent bringing up their child and basically saying they are committing to trying to raise that child in a biblical way. And that they are asking for one, the accountability from the church that we're going to help them, love them, and support them. And secondarily, the prayer from the church that we're going to pray over that family and help guide them throughout that journey. So we'll be doing that um, on the 20th. So anniversary, baptisms, and child dedication. If you are interested in any of those and need more information, please see Joe or myself, and we'll be glad to fill you guys in. All right? What's that? Movie night. Oh, and movie night. So one other date that's not in here on the 26th of August, that's a Saturday night, uh, we are going to be doing a movie night right before the kids go back to school. We'll have more details to come on time and movie and all that, but uh, it'll be a great opportunity for us to just get together and fellowship. All right, Ephesians, the armor of God. We've been in this book, it feels like, forever. Uh, this is the series that started in the book of Ephesians and then slowly morphed into a second sermon series on the armor of God. Uh, we are closing in our third piece of armor today, and so let me kind of recap where we've been. Throughout the book of Ephesians, Paul is hitting home on who we are and how we are supposed to live. And most of the book is very uplifting and reminding us of one, what God has done in our lives, and two, how he wants to see us live. And his big point is, is if your God is amazing, if your God is awesome, if your God is full of power, love, mercy, grace, forgiveness, and he lives in you, well, folks, you should look different. You should live different. Your marriages should be different. The way you raise your children should be different. The way you work should be different. And so he keeps pulling his people saying, hey, live the life. And then he gets to chapter 6, and at the close of it, he pulls everybody back and he goes, I need you to remember something. You're at war. This is not a track meet where you just get to go when the gun goes off and you just run nice and leisurely to the finish line. This is war. As you're running towards the goal, as you are chasing to get into the presence of God, as you are fighting to build the kingdom, there is an enemy who every day prowls and is looking to bring you down. Amen. And he says this because he wants to wake his people up. He wants his people to realize that, yes, you are empowered and equipped by God, but please don't forget you're at war. Why? Because if you forget you're at war, then you're going to be surprised every single time something happens to you negatively. Every time life knocks you down, every time disease, sickness, illness, poorness, broken relationship, financial problem, any time those come your way, you're going to go, what's going on? What's happening here? And so Paul's kind of looking at us going like, hey, you're in a boxing ring. Don't be surprised when you get punched. You should expect that. You should be waiting for it. You should be prepared for it. 
I was telling the kids the other week when we were doing youth class, there was this video that went viral and it was this Israeli sniper. And she's, she's shooting and all of a sudden you see a bullet whiz by her head and smash into the wall behind her and she starts to laugh. Like she gets out of the way and she starts to laugh. And people are like, she almost died. Why is she laughing? And when they talk to her, it's like, I'm a sniper. Do you think that's the first time a bullet's almost hit me? I was laughing at how close it was to me and it missed me. Thank goodness. Now you and me, if we would have a bullet fly by us, we'd probably not laugh about it. That's the difference in the mindset of a soldier who goes, I'm at war. I expect bullets to fly this way. Versus us who go, oh, no, I don't expect that to ever happen to me. Now, throughout Ephesians, we kept focusing on one passage outside of the book, and I've been calling it the key to the series. And the reason it's the key to the series is, is that you and I, if we look at the expectations that God has for you and me, if we look at the ideals that he sets, they are of such a caliber, and they are so high that they are literally impossible for man to achieve. They're not hard, they're impossible for man to achieve. In and of his own power. And so in John 15, 5, what we've been looking at is Jesus gives us this beautiful description of how the relationship with him is supposed to work. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. What's his point? Brothers and sisters, do not fight this fight on your own. We have a terrible tendency in American Christianity to treat Jesus as our backup. What most of us do in practicality is we come to God and we go, here is my will, here is my plan, here is my dream, God, please bless it. The other thing that we regularly do is as we're running day to day, we are using our strength, our power, our knowledge, our wisdom, our grace, our forgiveness, and it's only when we are empty that we then fall on our knees and go, God, I need your help. I, I can't do this anymore. I've been trying, I'm all out, I'm at my rope's end. Please bail me out. But Jesus is saying here, guys, if you think that way, you've messed up from the beginning. This isn't about your will. It's about His. What you should do is every day wake up and go, Father, please pull from my heart the desire to pursue my own will and show me yours. I am your servant. You are my Lord. And my job is to do what you ask. Help me build your kingdom. It's like Jesus in the garden. He has this moment where he asks God, is there any other way to take this cup from me? But he goes, not my will, Father, yours. Let yours. It's the same way he taught us to pray. Father, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The focus, God's plan, not yours. Secondarily, when you think like that, it means every day starts with going to God for his resources, not yourself. I go to him every day for his strength, his love, his power, his grace, his forgiveness, because his will overflow and his will fill the gaps that mine could never do. If he's my backup, what will constantly be happening in my life is I will be failing and asking him to bail me out. That is not the way we want to live this life. It should be a life of victory where we are continually going to him first and he is pouring into us things that you and I could never have on our own. That's the beauty he's trying to picture here for us. Now, Ephesians 6, 10 through 20, this is where Paul starts to break down for us, one, that there's a spiritual war, and two, that there's armor that God has given us. Now, brothers and sisters, it's important for us to understand there are some unique things about this war. 
And we have to be aware of these things because, again, if we're not prepped, if we're not mentally prepared, if we're not ready for this, then we constantly find ourselves surprised when we're under attack. So a couple interesting things to point out is, one, when he talks about putting on this armor, the verb that is used is a one-time permanent verb, meaning I put the armor of God on and it stays on for the rest of my life. This is not something I put on, take off, put on, take off, put on, take off, put on, take off. This is not something where I choose certain days like, hey, today we're going to fight. Oh, but you know what? Today, it's Saturday. We're just going to chill. We're just going to relax. No spiritual warfare today. We're just going to take it easy. As Christians, the worst thing that's happened to us in this country is we've become spectators. A great deal of people think what you're doing right now is church. The totality of church is what you guys are doing right now. Sit there, sing some songs, and try to stay awake while pastor preaches. That is not the church. This is like a retreat. This is like a re-energizing moment. This is where we come back and we're exhausted because all week long we've been fighting the good fight, building the kingdom, being light in the midst of darkness, being love in a world of hate. We come back here and go, man, so glad to be back home, catch my breath, be around my family, be around the Father, fill back up, and get ready to go do it again. That's what this is. But this is not church. The church is the people. The church is the fight that we have all week long to build the kingdom. If the church is just you and I sitting here, well, hey, guys, we can make this real easy. We'll just stream it online, and you can sit at home in your pajamas, eating breakfast, and watch it. And there, we did the church. It's not church. It's got to be more than that. Now, in this battle, there's a few things to remember. And it's a hard thing to remember because what you and I don't realize about the danger of the war we're in is we live behind enemy lines. It's funny, my dad talked to me about this a lot when I was a kid because my dad was a Green Beret. And so as a Green Beret, he would always talk about special forces and brag about which branch was the best. And so he would always argue, well, we're the best. He's like, the SEALs, they're great, but you know what they do? They get in, they get out, and they leave. He goes, us? We live behind enemy lines. We go behind enemy lines and we stay there for weeks, for months, for years. We build alliances. We're constantly surrounded by our enemies. And so for us, it's not a 30-minute, 45-minute, four-hour battle. It is every day, every moment, thinking about the enemy that is around you and staying sharp. And it's funny, as I got older, so I realized that that's what it is to be a Christian. We do not live in our territory. We live in the enemy's territory. And every single day, he is promoting messages and psychology and ways of thinking that have nothing to do with what our Father in Heaven promotes. Look at a few of these here. In John 14, 6, Jesus says this. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except me. Jesus doesn't say, I speak truthfully. He says, I am truth. I am truth. Now look at what Satan does. In John 8, 44, it says, You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and a father of lies. We have one eye in the light. We have our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and He is truth. We have an enemy in the world that we live that is all about lies. 
And let's be real, we've experienced those lies over and over and over again. Men, have any of you bought Axe body spray? If anybody's used Axe body spray, please tell me if you've ever walked through the grocery store and had flocks of women chase you. Because that's what they say is going to happen on the commercial. All right? And I have bought in a many pair of Michael Jordan shoes, and I have never ran faster or jumped higher. That's supposed to happen. All day, every day, we are lied to. Constantly, so much so that you and I, we actually start to lie ourselves about things and think, not so bad. I mean, how many times have you done this to yourself? I'm like, well, it's just a little lie. Just a tiny one. Just small. Just a little bit of deceit. The moment you do that, you're here. And so you have this culture pulling you and pulling you and pulling you, trying to make you live differently. Our Father is truth. Our enemy is lies. Look at this one, John 5, 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, has passed from death to life. See, a lot of people miss this about Christ. And this is, I, I feel so sad for so many people that think Christianity is a set of religious rules and that basically you have a God who has made life difficult to see if you can earn heaven. There's a lot of us who think that way. We go, oh, you know God, he's always watching, he's always judging, he's got all these rules for us, don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, don't do that. And he's put all these in place to see if we can pass the test, and if we do, we earn heaven. No, can't earn anything. You will never earn heaven. The rules were never put there for you to earn anything. They were put there because your Father wants to give you life. What Jesus represents is not a set of rules or a way of thinking. He represents new life. You literally, after having him come into your life, look at your old life and go, that wasn't even living. I don't even really know what that was. Kind of reminds me, like parents, do you ever think back of what life was like before children? I can't really remember it, to be honest. I don't know what I did with my time. I don't really know what I talked about. This weekend, we actually went on a date for the first time in a while with no kids. And it was like just super strange to be eating warm food, to not have to feed other people, and to be able to talk about things without being interrupted 50 million times with mom, 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 mom. That's just our lives right now. And so what's funny is Christ wants you to think that way about your conversion. Like when you look back at where you were without him, you're like, that wasn't even life. I don't even know what that was. I don't even know what that was. That's how I feel about being married and having kids. I don't remember what that life was like. My greatest joy every day is coming home and seeing my two boys run out the door to see me. And the feeling that creates in my heart, I can't tell you it. I can't explain it to you. But I don't remember life without that. And I sure as heck would never want life without that. That is what Christ is trying to show to you. I am life. Not a set of rules, I'm life. But then look at what our enemy is. He's death. Hebrews 2.14, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. Christ is life, Satan is death. And so this starts to explain to you why God gives you rules in the first place. He didn't give you rules to try to stop you from having fun. He's sitting there going, guys, do not play with him. 
It may sound entertaining, it may sound fun, but he only has one desire, and that is your death and destruction. Don't talk to him. Don't listen. Don't even dabble in that world because there's only one outcome. Death. It's why the minute Eve failed was not the moment she actually ate of the fruit. It was the moment when she was standing there and he said, look at the fruit, and she looked. What she should have done right then and there is ran. She should have right then and there go, you are evil and you are trying to take me from the path of my father. You have no place in my life. But how many of us do we play that game? How many of us do we justify our sins? How many of us do we excuse watching something we probably shouldn't watch? Listen to something we probably shouldn't listen to and go, oh, it's just, it's just entertainment. It's not real. It's not a real thing here. Yes, it is. Because what you're doing is instead of saying, how close to perfection can I get? You're saying, how close to sin can I get without sinning? I don't think any of us would ever sit there and go, how close to death can I get without dying? That sounds like fun. One is truth, one is lies. One is life, one is death. And probably the last and biggest one is just the way you think about life. Jesus Christ in himself had a spirit of humility and service to his Father. In Philippians 2.6 it says, Who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Jesus Christ his whole entire life, even though he had no sin, even though he had unlimited power, even though he could have built for himself his own kingdom, was constantly and continually focused on what? Doing the will of his Father. Day in, day out. Do the will of my Father. I come to do the will of my Father. He says it over and over again. And so in his followers, he's trying to create a group of people that go, this isn't about me. This isn't about my will. It's not about my life. It's about being with my Father and doing as he asks. But our enemy? Completely opposite. Look at Isaiah, Isaiah 14, 13, 14. You said in your heart, he's talking about Satan, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Satan's desire was when he looked in the mirror to go, I don't want a God, I want to be God. And to be honest, that's what our society teaches us. How do you build the most comfort into your life? How do you gain your most wealth? How do you build the best life for you? How do you make your day-to-day better? Even often, some of us come to church going, I want to be my best self. How can I be a better me? Who cares about you being a better you? Guess what? You will never be good enough to earn heaven. No matter how much better we make you, you will never be good enough. That's why we stop playing that game. And we go, it's not about that. It's about a loving relationship with my Father in Heaven. And the beauty of that loving relationship is He accepts me in what I am. And that when that day comes for me to be judged, it won't be me sitting there with a resume going, here's why I should be in. It will be Him standing in front of me going, Dad, He's with me. And at that moment, God will look at Jesus and go, Son, if He's with you, then He's in. That's what He's focused on. And so understand, you live in the darkness of these slides, even though you're called to live in the lightness. This means you must be on guard. You cannot go with the flow. If you go with the flow, you will never end up at the throne of God. 
The flow of this world will not take you to him. It will take you to the king of this cosmos, which is Satan. Amen. Remember that. Now, we've talked about a few pieces of armor. 6, 14 through 15, has said this. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. So we're at a third piece of armor here today. So let's recap real quick. The belt of truth served two wonderful purposes. The first was it took this long flowing tunic and it wrapped it up tight. And what that showed is that you were ready to move, you were ready to be quick, and you would cut off all the excess baggage. And so in the belt of truth, what we're really talking about is we're talking about a commitment. An attitude of commitment that says, I am prepped for battle. I have streamlined everything down. I'm ready to move. I'm ready to bounce. I am ready to do what is necessary. The second thing the belt offered is it had the strap that came across your shoulders, which reminded you of all your past battles and victories. Why? To remind you that if God got you through those things, He'll get you through this. That's why there's so many traditions and rituals in both Judaism and Christianity. It wasn't that God was trying to get you to earn brownie points with him. It was because what he was trying to say is, hey guys, remember, I have taken you through many a dark valley. I have led you to victory against many an enemy. I have stared down death and I have stared down Satan. And if I can do those things in the past and have done them, don't be afraid about what you face today. And so that belt of truth is about an attitude that says, I am confident and I am ready. The second piece we talked about was the breastplate. And the beauty of the breastplate of righteousness is what it is, is not only is it there to protect you from the strikes of the enemy, but it's also a signal to your enemy, he doesn't fight you, he fights him. That breastplate comes onto you, and from a distance your enemy sees that is a soldier of God. It's like when we're a football team, right? You put on jerseys. Why? Because you don't want people just intimidated by what you've done. You want them intimidated by what your team has done. And so that breastplate screams out to the enemy, I belong to Christ. I have His power and His righteousness. And if you come at me, you will face Him. It is screaming out to the enemy to beware. In 1 Corinthians 5.21 it says, For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. With that breastplate on, my enemy sees the righteousness of God, not me. And thank goodness for that. Because if I ever stood toe-to-toe -to -toe with Satan by myself, it would not be fun. It would be an ugly fight that would not end victoriously for me. So we have this belt of truth, which represents commitment. We have the breastplate of righteousness that focuses that Christ is my Lord, that I am identified with His army. And we come to our third piece, the shoes of the gospel of peace. Now, it's funny because shoes don't really sound like part of armor. They don't really sound like that essential thing to armor. But it's funny how if your shoes don't work, if your feet don't give you good planting, you're in trouble. In fact, it's an interesting statistic to look back over the history of wars and see how many times we lost men in battles because of issues with foot care. In Vietnam, constantly you had problems with trying to keep your feet clean and dry. And what they knew was, is you could be the most powerful, strongest person ever, but if you can't firmly stand, what are you going to do? 
I'll walk up and push you over. It reminded me when I was a kid, um, did you remember when rollerblading was a big deal? Remember, remember that? That was right around like second or third grade for me. Rollerblading was huge. Now when they first came out, my parents didn't have enough money to buy me a pair of my own. But we had this neighbor who had an extra pair and she gave them to me. And I was really excited because I, I was pretty fast back then and all my friends were playing. I was like, this is going to be great. So I strapped these bad boys on and I was terrible. I was falling all the time. I mean, all the time. I could, I could even like go down the street for like 30 seconds without falling. But I was persistent and I kept it up. But I was so frustrated by it because just months passed. And my friends are just, I couldn't keep up with them. It was embarrassing. They'd be running around the block playing hockey and I'm just falling, 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 falling. Well, finally, Christmas time rolls around and my parents get me my own pair. And I get these things. I'm like, oh my gosh, these things are awesome. And I put them on and the first thing I noticed as I put them on is they were really different than my other ones. The ones I'd been wearing were soft. So the, the ankle support just bent. You just tied them. These were hard around my ankles. And so all of a sudden I put them on and I was like, I don't fall anymore. All of a sudden I was fast. I could catch up to everybody. In fact, I was better because all the time I'd been using these bad ones, I'd been strengthening my muscles. And so now I was ready to fly. And what I realized in that moment, it was it had nothing to do with my skill set. It just had to be with that I didn't have good balance. Because of the equipment that I was using, I wasn't able to stand firmly on my feet and move. Similarly, brothers and sisters, that's what Christ is calling us to with the gospel of peace. The breastplate calls out to your enemy that I am in the army of God. The shoes of the gospel of peace are about you and what you know. Look at what he says. Stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. One interesting thing about this verse is do you notice that throughout all of it he never talks about us attacking? He says stand. Stand firm. In almost every encounter you have in Scripture of us facing Satan, it is not about us attacking. Jesus does the attacks. What you and I are called to do is to be able to stand firm so that when he comes, we can survive that attack. And so this, the strength of this piece of armor is that these shoes, what they had back then, is they had two key components. One, they had leather straps that would wrap up all the way your sh up your shin up to your knee. And the point of that was to put them firmly on you. Have you ever seen these kids running around with their shoes untied? Or have you ever tried to run in flip-flops? It's not very fun, right? You can't go full out. Why? Because you're trying to make sure the shoe doesn't fall off. Well, these straps, they made sure that one, you were one with your shoe. It's not leaving you. Two, the bottom of it was made of a thick leather that did two things for you. One, it protected your feet so that as you went into treacherous terrain, you weren't cutting your feet up on a regular basis. And two, within this leather were studs, just like uh, modern-day cleats. Why? So you could dig in, and if a force was coming, you could really hold your ground. The whole point of this was for you to be able to take a hit and stand there firmly. And so with the breastplate, we're calling out to our enemies, but with the, the shoes, what we're really saying is, in your own head, do you have doubt? 
In your own head, do you have confidence in where you stand with God? In your own head, do you really truly understand your identity and who you are? <coughs> identity is a weird thing, especially in America, because most of us, if you, if you ask us to describe ourselves, do you know what we start with? Most people start with their job title. Which is really, really not smart. You know why? Your job title can very easily be taken from you. And so a lot of us, we, we have learned to define ourselves by an identity that's temporary. I mean, does anybody remember like the guys in high school who were like caught up in being the star running back or the star quarterback? And then did anybody ever see them after high school when they weren't that guy anymore? And it was hard. It was like, a year ago, I was the quarterback. Like, everybody knew who I was. Like, it was a big deal. And now I'm just like a student. They didn't just lose a position. They almost lost an identity that they carried with them. Kind of reminds me, like, I remember in fourth grade, I was never the quarterback. Um, I was the nerd kid in class, but I took pride in being the smart, smartest kid in class. And we used to have this game, it was a trivia game we'd play every Friday, and I, I would wipe the floor with everyone. i just demolish everyone. It became like a joke. Well, one week, about three months into school, we get a transfer from Tennessee. Hunt Hawkins, I still remember him. We played trivia game, and you know what happened? I lost. Now, the first week, I was like, okay, yeah, I overconfident. Yeah, luck, beginner's luck. It kept happening for like four weeks in a row. And I started to find in myself like this anger about like, I'm the smart kid, all right? Like, I may not be the fast one, I may not be the cool one, but I at least have a role. I'm the smart, nerdy guy who always wins trivia game. And you dude just came and took that from me. Have you ever seen that happen like in a social setting? Like, maybe you're the funny one, but then a really funny person joins the group. And all of a sudden you're like, oh, they're funnier than me. I guess I'm just the second funniest guy now. No one really needs the second funniest guy. You lose your identity because you've tied it in temporary things. Christ says, do not define yourself by those things. You need to define yourself by the way I see you. Because the way I see you does not change. The way that God looks at you, the things He puts into your life, the way He treats you, those are permanent because He is perfect and He is permanent. The titles that God gives me, no man can ever take. And so when that becomes my identity, there is a confidence in myself that knows no matter what I face, I can firmly stand. We have to have that kind of confidence in our lives. Look at Romans 7, 15 through 20 with me. In Romans chapter 7, verse 15 through 20, it says this, For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that this is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, 
but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. I kind of sometimes read that and wonder if Paul was like had a bet to see how many times he could use the word do. But do you get his point? He has knowledge in him that says, I shouldn't do these things. But my flesh keeps calling out to do them. And the struggle that creates in him is he realizes he can never lie to himself that he's actually a good person. Have you ever noticed that? Like the hardest person to lie to is you. Because you know you. You know you. And so Paul's talking about how, how do you deal with that? Like, I know God has called me to perfection and I'm not that. I'm not that. There is sin in me. And I feel it calling out to me and I feel it influencing the way I live. What do I do with that? Because brothers and sisters, that kind of doubt is not standing in the gospel of peace. If you have that kind of weakness in you when Satan comes at you, do you know what happens? You might get afraid. You might wonder, I, I don't know if I can take this. Oh my God, I'm not strong. I am full of sin. I can't handle this. I'm going to lose. The moment you think like that, the victory is gone. And so throughout Scripture, God tries to remind us of why we need to have confidence. Romans 5.8, For God shows His love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What's Paul's point here? It's not about whether you're pure and holy. You were ugly and dirty from the moment Christ died for you. He never died for you because you were perfect. He came to you when you were his enemy, and that's when he died for you. And if he will die for you and bring you victory then, he will die for you and bring you victory now. Have confidence that he has already fought this fight, and he has already won. You and I will never look in the mirror and see perfection. Never. In fact, the funny thing that happens to me is the more I feel like I progress in my life and get closer to God, you know what I know more? I'm not Him. Every time I get closer to Him, I suddenly realize the distance is further than I thought it ever was. Because perfect is just so much better than I am in every way, shape, and form. But the peace that Christ gives us is it was never about you being perfect. This is about you accepting love that He pours out on you. Look at 1 John 3.8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So what you have happening here is Satan knows that when sin is present in your life, you know he rules you. You know that. Like, you ever had a weakness in your life where you just know you're going to lose that battle? You kind of pray it just won't come back because you know as soon as it does, you're going to lose? Christ came to destroy those things. Christ came to knock those out. Christ came to wipe those out of your life. He came to destroy that work that Satan does in our life on a regular basis. But brothers and sisters, what you and I have to realize is, is one, it's not about whether I deserve it. And two, he has already won this fight. He has already won it. Romans 6.6 6, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing 
so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So as you come through this progression, do you see what's happening? Paul's going, yes, you are a sinner. You will always be a sinner. And you will always have something fighting within you that wants to pull you the wrong way. But guess what? Christ died for you when you were the worst of you've ever been. And he came not just to save you, but to wipe out the work of your enemy, Satan, who deals in death and lies and destruction. And what you need to realize is, is the moment you became a Christian, you didn't just get close to Christ. You became one with Christ. And so what that means is going back to that John 15, 5, He's the vine, we're the branches. It means not only does He work in my life, not only is He present in what I do, it also means I was present in what He did. And so that's what Paul calls to here. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. What's Christ saying? He's saying we've become one, and that means on that cross, when I died, you died. Sin doesn't rule you anymore. And three days later, when I rose in the spirit of my Father, guess who rose with me? You did. And you are now a new creation with a new life, with a new spirit, with a new soul. And so his point to you is, don't doubt. Do not doubt. The enemy will attack hard enough. What you cannot be afraid of in that fight is that he's right there by your side, Christ Jesus. The confidence you have to have as the enemy brings it on is that you know God's not going anywhere. He's not going anywhere. There's three stories I wanted to allude to, and I'll just sum them up for you. In Matthew 7, 24-27, Jesus talks about those who listen to His Word and those that don't. He said, Those that listen to My Word are like those who build their house on rock. When the wind and the storm comes, the house stands. But those who listen to My words and do not listen, obey them are like those that build their house on sand. When the storm comes and the rain comes and the wind comes, the house is washed away. You and I need to decide, have we spiritually been built on rock or sand? All of us can put up a good face when things are going smooth. In fact, most of us are really experts at that. Have you ever noticed how much better your friends' life are on Facebook than they are in real life? Right? Always. Like, if you just evaluate people by their Facebook posts, life's perfect. But then you know those same people and you're like, ah, that's not what I see. Why? Because we love to put up a facade. Oh, look how beautiful and shiny and great everything is. But when the real storm comes, boom. And so Christ has always encouraged His people, you build on the rock, and I'm the rock. You build firm with me, and I will be there with you when it gets ugly. Now, there's a beautiful illustration of how this works. Matthew 14, 22-33 is one of my favorite stories. It's when Jesus comes walking out onto the water to meet His disciples in the boat. I love not only does that story show the majesty and power of God Almighty, but I love this interaction that happens between him and Peter. I always love Peter because Peter is like, there's these moments where you're rooting for him, like, that guy is awesome. And then there's moments where you're like, that guy is an idiot. And I like that because I tend to think that's kind of how some people look at me sometimes. I think I have moments where people are like, that guy's pretty cool. 
And then I know I have lots of moments where people look at me and go like, that guy, what is he doing? Like, come on, man, that was an idiot move. But what I love is God works with Peter. And Peter, because he has this faith, does amazing things with Christ by his side. And so when Jesus walks out on water, well, the rest of the boat's just like, <gasps> Peter's like, God, if that's you, call me out to you. Because if you call me out to you, I can come to you. I love how Peter's mind works that way, right? Everybody else is just shocked in the moment. Peter's like, I think I can walk on water. Can I be part of this? Can I get in on this? And Jesus says, come on out. And so Peter starts to walk on water. And that one just blows me away. This is not the Son of God. This is not a sinless man. This is not a perfect creation. This is a messed up, flawed guy who years before was just a fisherman. People would have just walked by him and never seen him, never noticed him. And now he's walking on water like the Son of God. But then you know what happens? Peter pulls a Peter. And as he's in the midst of this unbelievably cool thing, he starts to realize, like, I'm walking on water. And his focus deviates from the Lord. And it starts to deviate to the world around him. And he starts to realize, I'm standing on water. I'm in the middle of the ocean. There are waves. There is wind. There is rain. And instead of focusing on Christ, he focuses on the world around him. And what happens? He sinks. It's a beautiful illustration of whether you're on the rock or you're on the sand. One moment, Paul, Peter's standing there and he's just focused on Christ and he can do anything. The moment he takes his eyes off that, spiritually he's now sitting on sand and he just starts to sink. I'm going to give you one last description. Flip with me to John chapter 18. John chapter 18, I'm actually going to jump down to verse 3. It tells about when they come to arrest Jesus. Jesus has been praying in the garden. He has been preparing himself for what he knows is to come. And hey, if you want to take a lesson from that, think about that for a second. All of Ephesians, Paul's telling you, prepare for war. Here is your Lord and Savior, the perfect God-man, standing there and knows death is coming and what's he doing? Praying and preparing. Even he knew preparation was important for what he was going to face. And so after this moment of time that he has with God, it says in verse 3, So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. If we read into those words, what we see is he comes with an army. It's hard to guesstimate how many soldiers, but the guesses are anywhere from 20 up into the hundreds. And they come out in the middle of the night and they come armed and they come ready. This is a show of force. It's a show of intimidation. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, these men drew back and fell to the ground. You see what happens there? They come in the middle of the night with torches and weapons in hundreds. And their whole job is to try to intimidate him. He greets them and goes, who are you looking for? Jesus? That's me. 
And the way in which he says it, the force with which he presents himself, with the supernatural ability that he has, he does it in such a way that these men who came to bring him fear actually feel fear themselves. These powerful soldiers and warriors fall on their butts. Why? Because Christ meets them and says, what? Bring it. Now what I love about that is look what happens. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom he gave, would not, he would not lose one. Now look at our boy Simon Peter. Always being Simon Peter. Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? You see what happens there? Peter's standing there and he sees this army coming. And I bet you the first thing he felt was fear. In fact, we know that throughout all of these talks that Jesus had had with Peter about his imminent death, Peter was the one who was most terrified of. No, God, I'll never let that happen. No, I can't let that happen. It's not going to happen. No, can't happen. And Jesus kept telling him, like, do you not get this is my job? Do you not get I've been sent to be the Savior? Peter, this has to happen. Well, after he sees Jesus greet these men and so such a show of force that they fall, what happens inside of Peter's heart? Peter goes, if he can just say words and they fall, my goodness, we're going to take these guys. We got this. And he takes out his sword, and I don't think he was aiming to cut an ear off. I think he was aiming to cut a head off. And what I love about Peter is in that moment, logically, it makes no sense. It's 11 Bible teachers against an army of soldiers in the middle of the night. But Peter's not afraid. Why? Because he knows he's standing next to his Lord and Savior and he's seen what he can do. And so in that moment, Peter has this brilliant, beautiful spirit that's just like, bring it. And I share that with you because that's how I want us to be. We have said so many times, God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but of power, of love, and of self-discipline. You are not here to be hiding. You are not here to be quiet. You are not here to be unnoticed. You have the Spirit of God Almighty, the Creator of the universe, living in your spirit. The Jesus that walked on water, the Jesus that could speak words and make armies fall, lives in you. So why are you afraid? Why are you worried? Why are you scared? Do you think financial problems scare Jesus? Do you think broken relationships scare Jesus? Do you think cancer scares Jesus? Do you think there's anything that you can lay at his feet that he's going to go, oh, well, I, I can't handle that. Sin, death, all that. I had that, but this, no, that's too big. Sorry, you're on your own there. No. He has handled the darkest and ugliest the world has to offer, and he has always stood victorious. And so what he says with the gospel shoes of peace is, you stand firm confidently knowing I will not leave you. I am at your side. I will bring the victory. We will be see this through. But you've got to have that confidence. He can give you all the armor. He can give you all the spirit. But if the moment the enemy comes, you turn tail and run, 
If the moment the enemy comes, you fall down and quiver, all those things won't matter. I'm not saying that you guys should go take swords and cut off ears of all your enemies. Please listen to that again. If you if you tuned out, please don't cut people's ears off. What I'm saying is, is you need to have a spirit like Peter that goes, I know my Lord. And with simple words, he can make the world shake. So when the enemy comes, I do not tremble. I do not fear. I look him in the eyes and I say, bring it. Do your best. And I know that I will stand firmly and my feet will not move. Got to have that boldness. We've got to have that confidence. For 63 years, this church has stood here. And what has made it great is not these wood panel walls. It's not the green shag carpet that was very beautiful. It's not the sign. It's not the name. Guess what? Jesus will never tell you, great job at Harmony. He will say, great job in my family. Great job in my church. Thank you for being my church. And how we have stood is we have stood ready to take whatever comes our way. This road won't get easier. It will only get harder. But don't be afraid by that. Stand boldly in the Spirit of God saying, do your worst. I know I will be victorious in my Lord. I'm going to ask Brother Joe to come forward. We're going to be up at the front. Brother James is going to be in the back. If you have something on your heart that you need somebody praying with you for, please let us know. The beauty of this family is this family divides each other's pains and it shares each other's joys. You do not do this alone. You do it with God Almighty. You do it with Jesus. You do it with the Holy Spirit. And you do it with the family that is around you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and we'll close with a hymn.